Today on the Dolby Creator Talks podcast, it's Oscar season again. With the nominations announced just a few days ago, we are once again bringing you interviews with as many of the nominees as we can in our usual categories, best sound and best cinematography. But now that we're joined by our new regular guest host, music journalist John Burlingame, we are expanding into another category, best original score. We're kicking off those conversations today with film composer Laura Cartman, who just received her first Academy Award nomination for her score for the satirical family drama, American Fiction. This is a movie which received a total of five nominations, including Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Supporting Actor, and Best Adapted Screenplay. Take it away, John. Our guest today is one of very few composers to make a genuine difference in the scoring community. A five-time Emmy winner, she co-founded the Alliance for Women Film Composers and was the first female music branch governor in the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. After 30 years of scoring film, television, and pieces for the concert hall, she has just received her first Academy Award nomination for the music of American fiction. Welcome, Laura Karpman. Thank you for that gorgeous intro. Um, it's hard to even parse what has happened over the past week. But yes, yes, I did get an Oscar nomination. It's crazy. It's crazy. So how did American Fiction come to you? Did you know the filmmakers or the producers? No, I didn't personally. I, you know, I, it, people have asked me this question, and I know I should really ask Cord and the producers, like, the truth, but I almost don't quite want to know it, you know. But um, my agent submitted a reel, and it's funny because he made me remake it. Uh, the first reel I sent was, like, straight-up jazz. And he said, no, not jazz, jazzy, you know. So we redid it, and I sent it in, and they liked it, apparently. Um, and um, But then Nia Acosta, who's the director of the Marvels, uh, she and Cord are friends. So I think she put in – I didn't mention anything to her, but I think Cord asked her um, how I was to work with, and, and she she gave me big thumbs up, I think. We should probably clarify that Cord Jefferson is the writer and director of the film. Right. And so yes. when you two started to talk about this, did he have ideas about what music could accomplish in the film? I think everybody knew the language would be jazz. How that was going to work was the big question. So the temp score was classic jazz, you know, Miles Davis, John Coltrane, Monk, of course. Um, but they worked. It, it was really interesting because they set up the right feeling without being a proper film score. And, and so it's, so the temp score made it feel almost like, um, almost like a play, like, like kind of moments that were, that, that were more theatrical rather than really deep, deeply embedded and sort of, sort of organically into the, into the story. And I think, I mean, they knew that they needed Corden and Hilda in particular, the editor knew that they needed a composed film score that sounded jazzy, but really what that would be exactly was what was in question. And of course there are a lot, a lot, a lot of things that happen in this film emotionally. It's funny. It's satirical. It, there's tragedy. There's, there's great poignance. So all of these things needed to be able to be dealt with musically. You know, I haven't asked you, and maybe should, what was it about this script, this story that appealed to you? You know, I never read the script. What happened is I got a meeting, and they said, we want you to come over and view the film before we meet. And I am like 
I really like to do a lot of preparation before I have a meeting on a film. Um, and so I didn't know, you know, I, it, uh, when you go see a film at like T street productions, which is where it was, I knew there'd be people around. So I didn't want to go in stone cold and then see the film that come out and immediately like be a, and a, I mean, the meeting wasn't scheduled for right after the film, but you know how it is. You're out there, you're with people and, and, and anything can happen. So I read the book oh. and um, I picked up the book and I read it and um, I did it. I think in one or two sittings and the book is fabulous is really really an important thing to read and it's important to read also because the book is so good and cord's adaptation of it is so cinematic and so clever in so many ways it's it's really important to read the book to understand how great the adaptation is but anyway um i read the book so i went and saw the movie having read the book so i had a sense of what it was um and who the characters were of course they're quite different in the movie um but when I saw the film, it was like, oh, my God, I, I, I it was spectacular. And I came out and Hilda, the editor, was there and she said, what would you think? And I said, best adapted screenplay, best actor, you know, maybe <laughs> best picture for Lucky. You know? <laughs> like, I wasn't hard yet or anything, you know, but it was so, um, so clear that it was that it was going to be in, in the conversation to me. And, and it's funny because I was one of the few people on the team who were like, I mean, everybody loved it, but I just said, no, you guys don't get it. This is like really, really good. You're going to do really well with this movie. We should probably say, since we've mentioned the name of Monk, we should probably say that Jeffrey Wright's character is named mm -hmm. Thelonious. And right. so he's nicknamed Monk, which right. of course is a reference to a sort of very famous jazz artist of the, of the 20th century. I wonder if yes. you can talk a little bit about I mean, we think of you as a classically trained composer, somebody who went to Juilliard, somebody who was very comfortable with the with the traditional symphony orchestra. But talk to us a little bit about your relationship with jazz. Um, how, you know, if you've been a jazz artist at any time, if you've written jazz music for other, for other films, that kind of thing. Well, for me, classical music and jazz were not two separate things. I grew up listening to them and learning them completely simultaneously. And I mean, my mother had a super eclectic record collection. And in, in those days, of course, the records would sit on those yeah. things and then they'd spin and <laughs> they'd fall down. You remember that? Yes. And, um, you know, she would alternate between the Rite of Spring and, you know, and Miles Davis All Blues or whatever. I mean, it was just, and then go back to Leonard Bernstein. So she had like, and then flamenco music. So she, she was super eclectic. She was doing playlists, I think, before anybody was really doing them. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, so I grew up listening to jazz. And then when I, my very first serious piano teacher, um, was a jazz artist as well as a classical teacher. And I had these incredible books, which I still have, where like one page would be doing like a Hannon exercise, you know, in all keys. And then the next would be, so I would do Hannon and then do these little jazz exercises taking the same technique, doing them around the circle of fifths, doing them, you know, up and down chromatically. And she just didn't make, make, um, make it different. But I'll tell you something else um, that will be fresh to this interview. Are you ready? Yes. Which is pretty remarkable at this stage in the process. <laughs> so one of the things that Helene Mirisch taught me, who was my teacher, she passed away just only very recently, um, is how to sit in a meeting 
not sit in a meeting, sit in a restaurant, right? Playing jazz, cocktail jazz piano, and be able to talk to people who come up to you, right? She said, this is a skill you'll need. Now, I never, I mean, I played in, in bars and restaurants when I was at Juilliard, but it's not been the career path I chose. But being able to sit down at the piano and chat with a client while I'm playing something, this is something that's really come in handy as a film <laughs> composer. So so my early, early cocktail piano training has indeed um, positively affected my career as a film composer. So I guess I need to ask you why... Most of this score seems like it's sort of small combo jazz with occasional use of strings. And I'm wondering why that works for this particular story and these particular characters. Well, I mean, I think there are a lot of reasons for it. The strings come in when Lisa dies. So um, so the first kind of really pullback moment I think is is that in the film where you where you know you're seeing something bigger than a satire, um, although the satire is in itself very big and very important. Um, so the strings kind of take you into the world of um, the deeply emotional, the deeply cinematic. Um, it works well, I think, because it's a it's a it's it's both a big and a small story, but it's a talking movie, right? So people are there's a lot of dialogue, and basically the way the score is constructed is really using the actors, particularly Erica Alexander who plays uh, Coraline, his love interest, and then Jeffrey who plays Monk, using their voices as musical instruments. You know, like Jeffrey has a great like tenor sax vibe, and and Coraline has got this like sexy alto, you know? And so they, th when they speak, it's under like a rhythm section. And then the saxophones and, and Elena Pender, he's on flute, will come in to kind of move around that. But I did think of the actress as part of the jazz combo with rhythmic, a rhythm section backing them up. really fascinating. Um, is that unique to this film or have you done that technique before? I don't know. I mean, I think, I think there are things about it that are unique to this film because when you're, when it, it, you know, it needs to sound like jazz, right? So the jazzy thing that my agent said probably, you know, it's not quite right. Um, it, it, it needs to feel like jazz, but because it's a movie and because people are talking, you can't have somebody doing this like wild solo over a piece of dialogue. So you've got to be able to sort of listen to a voice like dialogue, take the moment where they're not talking, which might be four beats or six beats, do a solo and then come back to, to backing up your actors in the rhythm section. I think, I don't know if it, I, I don't know if anybody's thought about it that way. I, I think, I think it makes sense too for this particular film. Can you talk a little bit about what the main themes are in the score, what they represent? Should I go to the piano or is that too much disruption? No, no for not at all. If you feel okay, like I'm it. I'm going to unplug, I'm going to plug and, and, and walk over to the piano here. So you've got two themes basically. 
This is my dad's 1912. Oh, there's the dog barking. Okay, now you see we're really in a home studio. So you've got two themes, the monk theme, which is. And I won't go through the whole thing, but it's that one, two, three, four. And you have this very kind of monk theme where you've got these kind of block chords, right? This is what he did with a, with a big right hand that would move really well, but often that's very monk, right? So the whole thing is structured like that and it's in 5-4. So it has that kind of it has that that kind of Jay Brubeck feel, but it also has that not quite even feel, right? And then the family theme. Here I go talking at the piano, right? Here you see it demonstrated, just like Helene taught me. See, I can do it. Um, but here you have the uh, the family theme, which is this kind of gorgeous. Thing that moves and sways and works in a way that I think works for this particular family. And oh gosh, I've, now I've lost everything on that we're recording simultaneously. But see, I told you Dolby, we would screw this up. Um, but anyway, the, the the whole point of the family theme is that you have this theme. that moves and it's not ever even. And when it's played with two instruments, which it almost always is in the score, they don't play quite together. So, you know, I can't do it doing it myself, but So that's the kind of, the kind of feel of that, right? And that's how it works throughout the score. might be nice. You've mentioned Elena, uh, your flautist, and I know you're one of the two pianists, but maybe you should talk to me about who the other pianist was. Well, she's just this legend, Patrice Russian, amazing composer, amazing pianist. And um, she came over here and played the same piano. And the idea was her fingers moved and did things in ways that my fingers don't. And, um, and so I wound up really incorporating her into the, into the score in all kinds of magical ways, I think. 
And I wonder if you can maybe, I, I just love the backstory of your piano so much. Yeah. I wonder if you could talk for, I mean, cause I think that piano itself, which is such an integral part of the score, that piano yeah. itself has a great backstory. I wonder if you could talk about that. Well, it does. It does. It belonged to Sidney Gilleroff, who was the chief hairstylist for MGM, who, by the way, is the producer of this film. So it's it's pretty crazy synergy. And Sidney, um, you know, did lose. It dyed Lucille Ball's hair red. He did Marilyn Monroe. He did Rita Hayworth. Every, you know, many, 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 many famous um, actresses of the Hollywood's golden age. And he was a patient of my father's, who was a cardiologist. Um, toward the end of his life, Sidney did not have a lot of money, sadly. And he wanted to give something meaningful to my father for all of his years of, of helping Sidney and, and treating him. And so he left him this piano. And this piano, uh, I played it in Sidney's apartment. You know, he had an apartment in Beverly Hills, one of those beautiful, like, you know what they are, right? They're, you know, they're just great. And uh, Vladimir Horowitz apparently had played this piano and it was, it was really, um, really legendary. And, um, but it had been sitting around for a long time. Uh, at my, my stepmother smoked, so it had been around a lot of smoke. And I sent it to my piano store, a restorer and said, can you do something with this? And he said, you know, I don't know. Let me get into it and see what, what's there. He said, maybe. Um, and it would like it, it didn't quite play right either. You know, it was it was just it had not been played a lot. I mean, that's just the truth of it. And um, anyway, that um, one morning, six months later, he called and he said, "I think we have the best time we be in Los Angeles." He said, "Everybody's been over here playing it this week. It's amazing." And then it came the day that we spotted American Fiction, and I sat down and as kind of a test of the piano, I improvised the family theme and then Nora, my wife rushed in from the other room and said, Oh my God, we have to record it. And uh, so it's about my family too. And about my father who was a huge supporter of mine who loved music, um, loved jazz, loved just was just a, a really a beautiful man who was a, a treated patients his whole life and gave a lot to other people. Um, and, uh, you know, I think very much spoke to me through this piano. And here's another one that I haven't said, John, you're getting two good ones today. <laughs> um, a week ago today at about 5 a.m. after we'd taken our crazy dogs out to go to the bathroom and we were settling in to watch whatever was going to happen, the front door opened and without any, it was, it was sh shut very tight. And I said, just come on in. We're going to be on the couch. Come on in and sit down. <laughs> come on. And so I do feel that my parents came in and, and were sitting with me. And, um, and when we were watching this incredible event unfold. Meaning the announcement of the nominations. Yeah. That's really lovely. I'm so, I'm so glad you told me about that. I, that, I think you know, it's true. I do. I feel it. Yeah. Those are special moments in a life, I think. Well, it was one of those things. And it, it was funny because I, when, when I heard it, I mean, I didn't know what was going to happen. I really didn't, as you never do. And I, you know, we were in the living room and I decided not to film, you know, whatever was going to happen. And we said it, we turned on the fire and the dogs were around and we, you know, we lived on the beach. So we were by the ocean and, and we had decided breakfast at Nate and Al's 9 a.m. no matter what, do or die. All of our friends are going there. And um, so indeed we all did. Oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah. So 
since we're talking about the piano and and you and Patrice um, and Elena, your flautist, um, talk to me about how you recorded this. Was everybody, I mean, we tend to think about jazz or jazz combos where everybody's in the same room riffing off one another. Did you record it that way or not? No, and here's the thing that was really interesting about this project. I almost said weird and maybe it is weird, I don't know. But the whole time I was working on it, I really wasn't sure how we were going to record it, which is which is kind of um, wild. With saxophones, they're very, very hard to demo. So in other words, as many of you who are probably watching this know, uh, you know, when you play stuff for, for producer, director, editors, it's got to sound good. Like you can't just play it sounding like crap. Um, and all the saxophones don't sound good. I mean, even the best of them. Although I heard, uh, I heard, I saw a video of Stevie Wonder playing one at NAMM the other day. It's like, oh, wow, if we'd had that, maybe it would have gone a different way. <laughs> but um, so I have a guy that I love that I use, I've used for years, John Yoakum. He's a seasoned studio player. And so I would write something and literally like my assistant, would, we would open it up in Pro Tools, do music, send it to him, like take a, an iPad picture of it, send it to him and say, record this, send it back. And sometimes it would work, sometimes it wouldn't. Sometimes um, it, I had to go back and say, oh, let's do it this way or let's try something else. But the idea was just to record so that I could have good sounding demos for the clients, right? And um, and then I would play the piano just so that would sound good. So sometimes I would get it right. Sometimes it's like two bars at a time, punch this in. Sometimes it's like, let's leave this for, for Patrice. Um, and then I did sampled drums and, and, and bass, which I could mock up pretty effectively. And then once everything was approved um, and sampled strings, once everything got approved, um, we went back and forth. I said, well, should we go, should we go just record the score? And, and Elena said, um, you know, I think it sounds good and everybody likes it. So let's just bring Patrice in and, you know, we'll record bass, we'll record drums and, and, and do it that way. So it worked out really well. Um, and I think it worked for this particular set of people too, because you had total isolation, right? So that everybody was recorded separately. And so, you could really, again, in the world of scoring jazz for film, they had control over how long, how loud something would be. or and And I think that was imperative for this particular film. to say for for multiple instruments that were all recorded separately um in their own individual studios it sounds like a combo playing together 
Yeah, it does. And I mean, I think a lot of that is because we had enough that was real laid out that felt right. And so when people played, it was an exquisite corpse rather than just this kind of like, okay, everyone's going to go separately and then it's going to come in. The piano was there. Um, Sometimes the drums were there, all the saxophones and all the flutes were recorded um, so that when we added the rest of the rhythm section, it, it, it fit well. You know, and I think also I worked with musicians who I'd been, you know, who I'd worked with for, for years, um, other than Patrice and Elena. And, um, these people know me. They know my music. They understand what, what to do. And they, they did a great job. I'm curious to know about the mix. Um, because it seems to me that this might have been a challenge to mix properly. And I'm wondering who you brought in, who you involved and, and how big a role they had. There are two mixes for this. There is Alex Levy, who was our music editor, who kind of threw it together um, because the schedule on this thing was really tight. And then the soundtrack was mixed by uh, Peter Cobbin and Kirsty Whaley, who are the genius, genius um, people who I worked with uh, for the Marvels. And Peter was the uh, staff engineer at Abbey Road for years. And and he and Kirsty have been working together very successfully. And I think they brought something really incredible to the soundtrack. But Alex did a lot of the hauling and those uh, and those original things. But Nora, my wife, is also really, um, really good. She has a, a Grammy for engineering. Um, and, uh, she did a lot of the work too, as well. So it was, it was all hands on deck, but it definitely is a handmade score. It's, it's stitched together with a lot of really, um, beautiful people putting, putting their heart and soul into it. I'm especially interested in the music near the end of the film. Um, you know, the award ceremony and its aftermath because, Mm -hmm. Anybody who's seen this film, and I think most people, I think, who will be watching this or listening to this have probably seen the film by now. There is more or less three endings, I think. Yeah. Can you talk yeah. about how you approach them? Because, you know, we're not always sure what whether we're watching reality or fantasy. Are you sure about that in life? I mean, <laughs> you know, right. like, I don't know. I got an Oscar nomination. Have I mentioned that? Speaking of reality and fantasy, those two, those two seem to have crashed into each other recently, but for me. Um, so it's a perfect, perfect example of what scoring can do for a film. And it, I, when I used to teach, um, uh, film scoring for directors and producers at UCLA, I would take the opening scene of Psycho. Have I, I, I don't know if I've ever told you the story. Have I told you the story? No. Um, opening scene of Psycho. And I would put a piece of Patsy Cline in it. So it would be like period source music when she's driving in the car and all the stuff beforehand. So that th- that means it sets up the, the, you know, the period. Then I would put vertigo in. And so when the boss leans in, it seems like the biggest love story, like she's running away from love. And then, of course, the original score. So you're taking fundamentally the same footage and putting three different musical treatments against it and show how differently you perceive it. That's kind of what the three endings are. They're different, but but with a lot of the same footage. So the first ending is like the movie ending. That's the one where you're still in kind of what you're perceiving as reality in that moment. 
And um, so that music comes out of the My Pathology scene because in my mind, uh, you know, Monk and Stagar Lee are about to, you know, coincide in some way yeah. in this in this moment, or we think they are. So, so that comes back to that musical process music. Then the second ending is Monk's theme, but done in this very um, sweet, sugary, um, jazzy, big string romantic comedy ending and uh, or romance ending, let's say. And so with the Monk theme, that Monk's theme is for Monk, but it's also for, for his love affair with Coraline, because I think in the film we see it from his perspective. Yeah. So the Monk theme then becomes a love theme. And then the third version is a 90s cop drama with big, you know, Lacrimosa from the Mozart Requiem there. Um, and so, you know, so you really have essentially the same action, uh, except with different little bits tagged on to the ending, right? Um, that, that, are, that are transformative. So this is a really great example of what, fil of what music does for film. What was the back and forth like, if any, between you and Corey Jefferson? Were you sort of keeping him apprised of what you were doing? Did, were, did, were you hearing back from him during the process? Oh, yeah. I mean, they would come over here. You're in my studio now, right? So as you see, there are three kind of couches here. Corey would always lie down there in the middle one. Lie down. And he, yeah, lie, he would lie down. I think he really, I think he really liked that. 
and um, like really lie down. Like a lot of people when they're there, they kind of sit up. But Cord would really lie down. And so he was here. Hilda was there, and and um, and Nikos and Ben often came along. Sometimes it was just Hilda and Cord. Um, sometimes I would send it over to the editing room. I think at the beginning they came over here pretty frequently, so we could have the kind of interaction that we just had when I got up and went to the piano and and did that. Um, uh, and then uh, once we were further in the process, I would throw stuff over to the editing room, especially I think when we were, uh, they they rejiggered the first act quite a bit. And so um, at that point when they were trying to see what was working, what wasn't for them, I would send stuff over there. This is one of the most acclaimed pictures of the year. And um, and I'm I'm really glad about that because it's, it's smart and funny. Uh, and it's a, certainly a movie everybody should see if they haven't already. And I'm wondering this combined with um, you'd had, you had a great experience in London scoring the Marvels. You had a performance at the BBC proms at the Royal Albert Hall. Um, you have a new series on Disney plus. What if what's this year been like for you? I wonder if it's almost unreal. It's been, it's been absolutely amazing. Um, because I think here in our studio, we've been operating at the, at the capacity on the kinds of projects that we've always, always wanted. Right. And I think also there's been opportunity, right? There's been op great opportunity for Nora, my wife, she's co-scoring what if for me, there's been opportunity for Amelia Allen, my assistant, who's, who's picking up a lot of the slack on um, documentaries and, and that kind of work that now we're co-scoring those together. And so that has been really satisfying too, not only just for me, but to actually bring opportunity to everybody um, that's surround me, that's working here, that amplifies their own work. Elena, you know, she's learning film scoring. She did a project. Amelia helped her on that. And then, you know, plus she's assisting on, on our bigger projects. And so she's learning how to be a film composer. And so I really, it's not just been a boon for me. It's been a boon for absolutely everybody here because we've had high level projects that need a team of people and we have a fantastic team um here in the studio it's all female and and um so it's been that part has been deeply satisfying for me too well we're wishing you the best at the upcoming thank academy you. awards and thank you laura cartman for being with us today oh i so appreciate it thanks john Many thanks to Laura for joining us on the podcast today and best of luck on Oscar Sunday, March 10th, live from the Dolby Theater in Hollywood. We'd also like to thank John for conducting yet another fantastic interview. If you'd like to hear more conversations with the Oscar nominees in this category and more, please be sure you are subscribed to us, the Dolby Creator Talks podcast. Many of these awards are tough to pick, and we will continue to offer these in-depth interviews filled with unique insights into the work of each of the nominated artists, which may make it just a little bit easier for you to fill out your Oscar ballot, whether you are an Academy voter or you simply want to do better in your annual Oscars office pool. John has already interviewed fellow Best Original Score nominees Ludwig Göransson for Oppenheimer and Jerskin Fendricks for Poor Things which you can find in our podcast feed. There are links to our show on all the major podcasting platforms, including the video version on YouTube in our show notes, or you can just search for Dolby wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're curious to know more about the Dolby Institute and our work there, head on over to dolbyinstitute.com. 
There you'll find more information about all of our programs. You can access the entire library of episodes of this podcast, and you can sign up for our mailing list. Until next time, thanks again for joining us. This is the Dolby Creator Talks podcast. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry, with additional editing by Matt Nixon. And our production coordinator is Karen Marroquin. Thanks again for joining us.